Warhammer fantasy news, hobby, lore, and more. Welcome to the War Games Orchard with Nathan and GJ. They're big. They're scary. They're big. They're really not very clever, and they're big. Uh, did I mention that they're big? This is the War Games Orchard. Welcome to the show. It's GJ today. And today we are going to take a look at two of the biggest, baddest, meanest, and maybe slightly underwhelmiest units that you can get for the Dogs of War. I am talking, of course, of the Giants of Albion and of Asarnil the Dragonlord. So we're going to discuss them a little bit later in the show. But first, let's discuss some news and hobby. Well, everybody needs a hobby. A hobby is supposed to pass the time, not fill it. I did absolutely nothing, and it was everything that I thought it could be. Yes, we've actually got some news to report. Some old world news, that is. If you have been on Facebook anywhere in any of the Warhammer groups in the past few days, you will know that a new old world development diary has dropped. This time we get our first look at some actual bits, some actual models, it's not just concept art. Uh, well, these do look like the uh, 3D renderings, so not yet photographs of actual models that have been uh, cast or printed, but these are the, I think, the, the digital designs for them. Uh, we get two sorts of bits, uh, two pictures, one for Bretonia and one for Tomb King. So there's actually two pictures for Bretonia. Let's go through the article. Uh, in today's article, I'm just going to read this out loud. In today's article, we're visiting the armories of the old world and giving you a first look at some of the weapons and war gear that can be found in the brand new plastic kits coming for the Kingdom of Bretonia and the Tomb Kings of Camry. Angard. I think, and I'm not, I know I'm not the only one, but I have no extra insight or this. this is just pure speculation. I think that these might be a part of the new two player starter set that we will get for uh, Warhammer the Old World when it is finally released. So, Taking a look at what we have here, we have three Bretonian helmets. Uh, they are very similar to the ones that we had in earlier editions, uh, in 5th edition and in 6th edition. Um, they, they still look like these uh, big heavily armored helmets that cover the entire face. They've got some some holes for uh, breathing, some eye slits. And on top of the helmet, there is a decoration. We see three types of decoration in these pictures. One has a set of antlers. The other one has what looks like a phoenix or a different kind of bird. And the third one has a dragon head. And below them are portrayed five shields. They have the more or less classic Bretonia kite shield form 
except that these are all decorated in some form or other with fleur-de-lis symbols. Uh, that makes them a little bit more fiddly. I guess they might also break easier, especially the ones where the fleur-de-lis is uh, standing out on top of the shield. I think that can be a very fragile part, just holding on by a very tiny bit. Um, I don't know if I'm a fan of these, because the border does restrict you with what you can do with them. And I already had some trouble when I was building my own Bretonian Knights, getting the, especially the larger transfers to fit onto the shields. And these were just plain kite shields uh, with no border. So uh, I do like that they do not come with shields uh, embossed, with, with emblems embossed like you had in 5th edition. Because those shields in 5th edition, they really limited you to uh, four basic types of heraldry. I believe you had, uh, I think there were four. I believe you had an, an, uh, an eagle or a different kind of bird. And uh, I know there was an ox with them. And I can't really remember the other two. But there were two more, two, two more uh, animals. I believe one was a deer head with antlers. And... These four shields uh, limited you a little bit. Then in 6th edition you got these shields. They, they might have had an edge to them, an embossed edge. Uh, similar to these ones, I'm not quite sure. Um, so, yeah, it is, it's been too long ago since I painted these Bretonians. Wow. Uh, instead of looking them up, I'll just uh, go with that. Uh, the shields... Yeah, not so much, especially for me. This is just personal taste, of course, because I play my Bretonians uh, following the 5th edition lore. There was a big change in Bretonian lore from 5th edition to 6th edition. In 5th edition, you had this almost high fantasy Arthurian uh, land that was ruled by noble knights going out on quests. And in 6th uh, edition, it was a lot more grimdark. The peasants were really not what you wanted to be. In 5th edition, there was even a possibility for a peasant to become a knight if he was lucky. And in 6th edition, it is said that only happened three times. And the only guy who is mentioned dies in his first battle. So, yeah, there's this real class distinction. Uh, there's a little bit to say for both of them, for both of those settings. But in 5th edition, and that's the reason why I don't like these fleur-de-lis on all the shields, in 5th edition the fleur-de-lis is the symbol for going on the grail quest. So you only see the fleur-de-lis on questing knights and grail knights. Uh, following that uh, example, that aesthetic, I do not give my knights of the realm fleur-de-lis symbols in their heraldry. Uh, and uh, nor do I do that to my knight errant. Um, so I'm not sure yet if these are in the starter kit, how I'm going to use them. I will probably get them because uh, from what I see here, they, they do look nice. Um, there's definitely something that I can do with them some way or another. Uh, I might even add them to the other knights that I have for 6th edition, depending on the skill creep. The ones that I use for Grail Knights now. Especially if they come in a starter kit, I will uh, I will definitely get them. 
Now, the next picture we get is from some uh, Bretonian weapons arms. We have seven right hands holding swords. Six of them are holding swords. One of them is holding an axe. The swords, again, are decorated, uh, several of them, at least two or three, with the fleur-de-lis symbol, as is the axe. They say the axe is uh, favored by those from uh, Brion, the knights from Brion. That's also a 6th edition addition. Uh, the knights themselves, the arms the, themselves, they are armored, uh, but they are not all armored in the same way. Some of them have their hands free, their, their hands are not armored. Uh, I believe all of them have actually no armor on their hands, except for one who is wearing a glove. Uh, now as someone who knows just a tiny little bit about medieval warfare and what works and what doesn't work... This is not something you want for a heavily armored knight to have his fingers free. You might think, yeah, that gives you a better grip on your sword, it gives you a lot of flexibility, but that also makes your hand a very weak part. And if your fingers get injured by a sword that slides down the, the blade of your own sword, then you cannot use your sword arm anymore and you are out of the battle. Uh, so I don't think I would have gone with this particular aesthetic for them just for practical purposes um yeah what else is that to say about the swords uh, they have this classic long sword look uh, at least a classic movie long sword look i believe actual long swords had a more a longer point uh, but because in movies that would be very very dangerous uh, usually in movies you see a blade that goes straight for a long while and then ends in a slightly rounded, uh, well, how do you describe it? It's like, a, uh, like one of those gothic windows that end in a, in a tip. So uh, it curves inwards from both sides until it ends in a tip. And I believe that historical longswords uh, had a much sharper point and were had also a, a longer point so that you had a sh uh, smaller cutting area and thus you could c stab someone with less force. Uh, so yeah, these do look like the movie source and I get why they do that because that's also something that is uh, all about aesthetics and that's what people are used to. Um, now these sword arms there are some of them that are shown from the outside and some of them are shown from the inside and on the ones that you see from the inside there is a little circle or oval it might be an uh, might be all a circle depending on the angle that the picture was taken in so i guess you fit these into a, a slot in the shoulder and you can turn it around a little bit so that you can have the sword pointing up or pointing down. Uh, also something that is rather noticeable is that these are swords and an axe. Well, the standard weapon for a Bretonian, um, for a Bretonian uh, cavalry man, for a Bretonian knight, that's what I was looking for, uh, is the lance. 
there's only one unit of Bretonians that fight with swords, uh, and that is the Questing Knights. Now, if these are meant for the Questing Knights, then I withdraw everything I said about the fleur-de-lis symbol on the shields. However, there's no reason to suspect that, because the article says the fleur-de-lis is a common symbol and features prominently upon the metallic trim of these shields. Then they go on to say there is also plenty of room on the shield face to display the heraldry of whichever high-ranking noble your knights have pledged to. If that's the case, and there is plenty of room for that, then I guess these shields uh, might be rather big, and that is not good when it comes to skill creep issues. Uh, now there's been some rumors, uh, seeing as uh, the models have been getting bigger and bigger, that some of these uh, base sizes that we are used to might have to be revised, might have to be upgraded, that whatever is on a 20 mil base now is going on a 25 mil base, and whatever is on a 25 mil base now should go on a 32 mil base or something like that. Uh, we don't know yet how they are going to do this. If that's the case, then um, it might be that Warhammer is going to Warhammer the Old World is going to be at a slightly different scale, or I might just be fussing over nothing. Uh, so yeah, a, a unit of knights with swords. Uh, what is this going to do for the rules? Will they have extra rules for swords when fighting? on a mount because I really can't see any reason why you would take knights without lances. Um, they do look cool but if these are all for the champion, for the unit champion, then uh, yeah, I don't really know what they're going for. I don't think you will need seven different kinds of swords for a unit champion. So I'm curious to see what they are going to do with this. I do like some of the details there. There's one sword that has a key dangling down from the arm. Uh, the one with the axe has a ribbon tied around his arm. Uh, that's something that you see a lot in especially the 5th edition Bretonian law, but also in 6th edition. Uh, that's something that you could take as a token from a lady. This knight is... Uh, has pledged himself to maybe win the love of one of the Bretonian damsels. Uh, not talking about the damsels that practice magic, uh, not necessarily anyway, but any Bretonian noblewoman. Um, that, especially in tournament situation, favored a knight can give a ribbon or a piece of cloth or, or a piece of a clothing even. And that knight then uh, fights for the honor of this lady. So not just for his own honor, but for the honor of this lady as well. Moving on to the second set of bits that we get. We go all the way down south to Camry. We get some weapons, uh, one shield and some... Uh, little details, uh, scarabs and a scorpion uh, that you can add to bases. Uh, now, I don't know what the scale of these scarabs and scorpion is going to be, but some of them look... Uh, yeah, I'm not not quite sure about them. They are... Uh, they, they are less detailed than I would have expected at this stage. 
if these weapons are all at the same scale in this same picture and I think they are because the hands all look similar uh, and if these scarabs are also all of this all to the same scale then some of them are not as detailed as I would expect them to be uh, the legs are very short and stocky and big compared to the bodies uh, the bodies these shields these carapaces are not really decorated uh, there's one that has some ridges uh, but most of them just have a, a shield and I guess you have to do something with painting there because not all bugs have uh, ridges or something on their shields but I thought Games Workshop would do more with that at this point in their manufacturing process and, and history. Now it's not just all grumpy GJ because there are also some parts over here that I really do like. And in this weapons set that we see here we have some uh, very Tomb King looking swords, we have a spear, we have a flail, we have a wizard staff and we have a shield. Now let's go through them just from, from top to bottom and left to right. And the first one we see is the flail. Uh, the flail we see one hand holding it. And there is, I believe, uh, three, uh, I can't see from this perspective, but at least three uh, chains hanging down from them that end in these big blocks of metal with some spikes on them. They are all hanging down. This is a weapon that is being held upright. Uh, that means that there is not too much you can do with this weapon in terms of modeling. You will always have to make sure that the model carrying this weapon is holding his arm uh, straight up or his hand straight up so that the flail remains vertical. If the flail was stretched out a little bit such as the uh, flails that the marauders have or the flagellants then you would get a sense of motion and you could basically do what you want with them it doesn't really matter if you hold the flail uh, at an angle or, or up straight because it's mid-swing so it can be in uh, sort of any position uh, the next weapon is a spear, uh, a spear that has two sidebars, um, it, it looks more like a trident. The article says these sidebars are to stop the spear from going too far down the victim because it's uh, thrust by a weapon skill 2 skeleton. Well, maybe this one's for a hero. Uh, so that means the, the the crossbar on the handle of the spear you see that also in uh, some of the other spears i'm thinking for example of the island of blood high elves uh, that's also one of the skeleton spears from the old undead kit the one that you originally got with vampires and that was later added some spruce to for the tomb kings and yeah, like I said, the article says that this cross guard is there, is designed to be there so that the spear does not penetrate the victim too far. Now, the problem with this is that the cross guard also has little blades pointing up. It looks a little bit more like a trident. And that would mean that if you stick this into a victim, not only will you uh, pierce him 
with the large blades, you will also pierce them with the smaller blades. And these have little hooks on their ends, little barbs. So it kind of defeats the purpose there. Instead of being easier to pull out, it's actually more difficult to pull it out. Uh, the bottom of the spear, it looks like what you might expect from Tomb Kings. It's got this little uh, crescent shape at the bottom. Uh, the spear shaft itself also looks similar to what we see with the plastic Camryan War Sphinx. Like these uh, bamboo spear type things. Except that this is not all bamboo. This is just... Uh, uh, some of these wooden bits, I guess they are wood and they are interspersed with metal bits and then some uh, some turning, more like spiraling metal. And there's a scarab on the point where the three blades of the spear meet the shaft. Uh, up to that point I think is rather fine, but above that, the, the trident shape of the spear, it gives it more like a... Greek or maybe um, Atlantean look, uh, at least to me, than what I would expect from Camry. Uh, this, this spear, this trident-shaped spear, just uh, uh, reminds me of what I think, uh, if it should it have ever existed, the uh, mythical island of Atlantis would have had, especially in those. Uh, nice mythological movies and stories that uh, that borrow from Plato. Uh, moving on, we get two very similar looking weapons. One is a halberd and the other is a, a sword, a kopesh, an Egyptian sword. Uh, both of these weapons, actually all of these weapons, have one hand attached to them. Um, so... This might be something that is not yet finished, but it might also mean that you have to put this hand onto a wrist, onto an arm. I'm not sure what that's going to do with the stability of the models. If I zoom in on them a little bit, I see, yeah, the hand does look a little bit skeletal, but it also looks a bit fleshy. It's, it's got... Um, especially at the the pad pad of the thumb is that's what it's called in English. Um, so so basically this area where your thumb comes out of your hand, uh, that is it, it. It looks a bit too fleshy and a bit not bony enough. So um, all right, maybe a little bit more of Grumpy GJ than I had promised initially. Uh, right, the, the shape of the blade is uh, really interesting. It, it's a curved blade. It goes, uh, if you start at the base, it goes, it, it curves backwards until, until it is above the uh, shaft of the blade. It sticks out a little bit first, then it goes backwards, and then the tip of it curves forwards again. Uh, these are slicing blades. They are not made for stabbing. The... Um, a design feature that I, I like with these is that uh, right near that part where the blade curves back, where, where the curve reverses from going uh, backwards to forwards, there is a little support structure. Uh, the halberd has it in the shape of a... Uh, 
basically two two rods that have been joined together to follow the curve of the blade, or, or you could say there's a thickening of the blade with a hole in it, and there's a similar thickening with a smaller hole in the um, in in the sword in the kopesh. Um, the kopesh also has the sword, the blade, continuing all the way across the uh, crossguard. No, what's it called? Not the crossguard. The uh, uh, it, it goes all the way across the pommel. Let me look up the, the, the word real quick. Well, that was easier than expected. It's just called a guard. So what you have here is that the sword looks a little bit like a... Uh, a rapier, a three musketeers type of sword, in that the hand is covered by a guard, except that in this case the guard is part of the sword itself. So um, even if you were to punch someone in the face holding this sword, uh, they would still get cut. So maybe don't punch people in the face while holding swords, or maybe not at all, although... Um, that might be a reason I'm not judging there. Moving on to the next and last weapon that we get is a wizard's staff, a staff for a lich priest. This staff has... Uh, it, it looks a little bit more like a, a standard top. At first I thought it was a standard top. Uh, the staff follows the same design as the spear, with that uh, bamboo interspersed with uh, metal and, and spirals. It's held by a full-length arm, or at least an arm going up to over the elbow, uh, which is covered in bandages. Um, I'm not sure if that's fitting for Tomb Kings, for the lore, because uh, at least in 6th edition, Lich Priests... They were not mummified, they were alive when Nagash's spell hit, but they had so stretched out and depleted their life force that they essentially had managed to become immortal, to live forever, uh, but they had sort of already died in the process, so, so their skin's all dried out and everything. Um, so I'm not sure why this one should have bandages. Uh, there might be a little bit of a lore change there. The staff, when you go up, it takes the shape of a cross, um, sort of, more or less. Uh, the cross pieces, the, the ones sticking out to the sides, they have uh, a bone and a skull hanging from them respectively. And especially with the bone, you can see it's at an angle. So this staff is supposed to be held at an angle. And judging by the position of the hand, this staff should point backwards or this should be on a mounted character. Because the hand is very high up the staff, almost near the headpiece. Uh, the hand on the spear is much lower. Um... Well, not much, but a little bit lower. Low enough, at least, that it could feasibly be feasibly be used by a character on foot if he holds his arm up. But it's still rather a long thing. Uh, then the top of the staff is a skull, which is more or less crowned by a... Uh, what, what you might call the, those Tomb King... 
banner tops, shield tops, those uh, semicircles with spikes protruding from them. It's uh, divided into several squares, more or less square-shaped forms, uh, which I am pretty sure are going to be painted alternating colors of red and turquoise. And uh, just as with the spear, there's also a scarab symbol here, a disc with a scarab symbol, where the four pieces of the staff, uh, the top, the two side pieces, and the shaft itself meet. Then the final thing that we get to see is a shield. And this shield is uh, a lot more decorated than the Bretonian ones we have seen. It takes a little bit of a detour from the more classical Tomb King shields in that it does resemble the shape, which is a straight bottom, straight edges, and then a curved top with some, um, so some holes in the side, you might say. It does resemble that, that same form, except that it is a little bit more uh, open. There is no... Uh, the, the top part of the shield is not solid. Uh, the shield is uh, also crowned, you might say, by a metal rim with spikes protruding from them. Uh, the bottom has a little uh, semicircle there that wasn't there with the original Tomb King shields. And on the shield itself, you see that. Uh, scarab symbol uh, the same one that we saw on the staff and on the spear and you also see a skeleton uh, with his arms folded across his uh, his chest his ribcage uh, skeleton is crowned with a crown with a serpent there's a uh, spiky halo around his head and the skeleton has got wings now I'm not sure what they were going for here because um, winged skeletons is not something that you regularly see in, uh, let's say, Egyptian mythology. These wings are the bird wings that you would also see on, for example, a high elf shield. We do see feathery wings in Egypt, uh, for example, in depictions of the goddess Ma'at. And those wings are an extension of the arms. The arms are usually held out straight and the wings fall down underneath them. So the wings have a straight top and then uh, also a straight bottom and they, they curve into a, uh, into a point. Um, there are some statues with, with curved wings, but mostly in hieroglyphic depictions you see them straight. So... This might be a definite departure from the Egyptian aesthetic here. Uh, and also, keep in mind that all of these weapons were made whilst the Tomb Kings were still alive. So, all of these weapons have been made by uh, regular living humans. And yeah, Camry was obsessed with uh, death and the afterlife and living forever. Um, and we do also see some depictions of skeletons and skulls on other living factions, uh, most notably the Empire. But I don't think that the uh, giving everything just skull symbols, uh, such as the Lish Priest staff, such as the uh, 
skeleton torso with the crossed arms there, the winged skeleton on the shield. I don't think that's an aesthetic that is logical, um, to quote Mr. Spock. Something that I forgot to mention is that we also see that scarab symbol appear on some of the other weapons. It's at the base of the flail and it's also on the halberd in a uh, slightly reduced form because it's a little bit smaller there. Well, we have a very short article here, but yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm not really sure what... What, I, what to think of this? Uh, it makes me excited. My first reaction was that I was excited to see these two factions return, to see that we have some actual uh, progress here, some actual models, some actual designs for models, because, yeah, even though it's great that the game is coming back, uh, we all want those models. And I think it's a very good choice for Games Workshop to put two of the most sought-after armies uh back in the spotlight we also saw in that earlier article um with with the concept art we saw a bretonian archer and a bretonian knight and we saw a tomb king's chariot and then we also saw an orc on a boar so i expect that these might be among the first factions to be released uh, maybe even in the start of kit bretonia versus orcs but yeah, that's, uh, sorry, Bretonia versus uh, Tomb Kings, I should say. Uh, there is definitely a historical Warhammer, historical uh, narrative there, because Cetra has invaded Bretonia several times in the past, and Bretonians have also raided the land of Camry. There's a battle report in one of the White Dwarfs. Uh, I can't remember which issue it was. But uh, that was right near the start of 6th edition, I believe, or maybe the start of 7th edition. You had a large Tomb King's force um, and a large Bretonian force painted all in red and white, sort of like a crusader army. And they fought it out in the deserts of Camry. I looked it up real quick. It's in UK White Dwarf 278, if you want to uh, look for that. So... Uh, that took a little bit longer than I expected, and that's just the article. Uh, we have some other hobby news as well. One of the things that we discussed in the Wargames Orchard Facebook group, at least a few of us discussed, is to um, rename the painting competition and remake it into a painting challenge. So what has happened in the past few months, every time we had, uh, for some reasons, a few people participating and we had the same guy uh, getting the most votes, which is uh, Jörn. Uh, he's a really good painter, so there is uh, nothing but praise f from me for him, for his paint jobs. He does a lot better job than I do. And when he and I are the only ones competing then there is really no competition because I do not like to uh, to win a painting competition that I'm hosting myself. So what you suggested is maybe we should turn this into a challenge rather than a competition, which is what we're going to try for now for the coming time, uh, at least for this month. So the pirate theme that we have running for March 
is not going to be a competition but a challenge. Paint one miniature as piratey as you can. Uh, I'm doing a zombie pirate because I'm using this challenge to paint up a uh, unit or maybe even an army of zombie pirates. And I've already painted my miniature, I've already finished him. It's going to be a... No, I'm not going to tell you what it is, you, have to, you just have to wait and see. But uh, I'm not going to post it up yet because I still have to put some flock on the base. And I'm going to do that in a large batch. Uh, usually I do that at the end of the month where before I submit my Call of the Crown entry, I just do flock on all the bases of the miniatures that I have painted so far. Speaking of painted miniatures, in the last week I got through 29 of the Monopose Plastic Beastmen uh, added to the 21 Bestigore I painted earlier. This makes a unit of 50. Uh, besides that, I've also started work on my Minotaurs and my Ogre. I, I got the airbrushing out of the way. So that means that the skin tones and the uh, and the fur is mostly done. I still need to add some uh, some dry brushes, some highlights to the uh, to the fur and some ink washes to the skin tone. But uh, that's done. That's out of the way. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to grab my minotaurs in in, in groups of uh, five or six, I guess. And then uh, paint them up in those groups. Uh, the reason for that is that I put all the plastic and resin minotaurs that I have on my own customized painting stands, which are champagne corks that are glued underneath a lintel that we had left over that goes uh, on the floor against the wall. I believe it's called a lintel, something like that. This is like a piece of. Uh, laminated pressed together wood that's a couple of millimeters thick and a few centimeters wide uh, and I cut these to size and, and I just put some putty on there some of that post attack and then uh, put the miniatures on there it works really well provided that the uh, that you put enough of the putty on there especially in the case of metal miniatures now I'm not going to try it with the metal minotaurs because I know that they're just going to be too heavy. They're going to sag and fall, so I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do with those is I'm just going to put them on the table and uh, pick them up by their bases when I paint them. So I might do all of them as one batch and then do the uh, smaller batches with the miniatures, the, the plastic and the resin ones that are lighter that I have on those bases. One thing that I am really happy about is the way that Torox turned out. I have some uh, chrome metallic... Well, it's not chrome because chrome is a silver color, but uh, it's, a, it's a bronze color that has the same shine of chrome. I have that with the uh, airbrush set that I have, the one from Army Painter. And uh, that looks really nice and really shiny. It actually looks so shiny that it was a little bit unrealistic. So I toned that down by giving him a wash of brown ink. 
I would love to show you the pictures of that. I, I guess I can post them on the Facebook. I, I should do that at some point. Um, but I I have been getting back to Instagram. Uh, for some reason in my mind, there's only room for one type of social media channel. And I've been neglecting Instagram a little bit. So last week I got back on Instagram. I posted some pictures of my Beastmen. And then on Monday, uh, which is yesterday, I'm recording this on Tuesday. On Monday, I got a message from Instagram saying that my account was blocked. So now I am in Instagram jail and I have absolutely no reason why that is or why that can be. Uh, I've been looking at their community guidelines and there's nothing I can discover there the only thing that might be the case is that I have used too many hashtags in some of my posts. I did have a file on my phone that has a preset series of hashtags like uh, Warhammer, Warhammer the Old World, Age of Sigma, stuff like that. So that people can, uh, who look for those terms on Instagram can find the, uh, the pictures that I post. Uh, but I have not been using them in these past few days because I've just been too lazy and I think well um, Yeah, of course hashtags are important, but I'm not trying to build a following here I'm just trying to get this out there to the people who want to see it So I'm hoping that at some point my Instagram will come back and if not, I'm uh, Not really sure what I'm going to do. I've also been neglecting the war games orchard Instagram Um but yeah, well, the reason for that is mostly because uh, we don't have too much to post because the people who follow us on the Wargames Orchard Instagram are also the ones that are already listening to the podcast. So it doesn't really make much sense to put the uh, info for the new episodes on there when you already get notified by... Uh, Podbean or whatever podcasting platform that you use. Right, uh, that was a very long news and hobby section. Uh, we're still not done because there is one thing I would like to shout out from our Wargammer Orchard Facebook group. And that is uh, Jim Bob who uploaded a lovely, beautifully painted picture of uh, Leonardo da Miragliano. Was not the official miniature of course because he never got an official miniature and in the Dogs of War book in 5th edition he is mounted on a, a mechanical steed. But this is the 4th uh, edition Hellblaster crew member that is uh, definitely not based of Renaissance man Leonardo da Vinci. Because he definitely doesn't look like him with his uh, bald head and long beard and his sketching pad. Uh, Jim Bob even drew a, a nice uh, ballistics trajectory, I guess it is, on the sketching pad. Uh, he painted them up in, in uh, a bit like olive green and, and khaki brown colors uh, with some subtle red stripes on the legs. Uh, really well done, uh, very beautiful model with a, a great paint job. So uh, thanks Jim Bob for posting that. And uh, he's, he's posted a picture that he's going to do the artillery crew next. 
So we are looking forward to that one. Now, about today's topic, I had uh, thought to do an episode about a Skaven topic, because I don't believe I have ever done a solo app about Skaven. I've had a fair share of battles against Skaven, but I've never played with them. Uh, they are... I have some models undercoated that I hopefully get around to soon, but I hopefully get around to soon to them for over two years now. So I'm not sure how soon is going to be soon. Um, the topic I had in mind originally was going to be the Screaming Bell. But because the Screaming Bell appears in three iterations, in 4th uh, edition, 6th edition and 7th edition, and because it is a very whimsical weapon that has a lot of rules, I thought I'm going to skip that one because of the length of the podcast. Uh, I'm already running a little bit longer than I had planned to. I still got some time recording, so we'll just take it from from here and see where it goes. Uh, now, I had hoped uh, when I was driving home from work today, uh, my wife called me to uh, inquire when I was home, and uh, she had the phone on speaker, and my oldest daughter said, uh, Daddy, you got a parcel. Uh, so I thought, well, that might be something to do with my new toy, which is a 3D printer. Actually, two 3D printers, a resin printer and a filament printer. Uh, I got them both from Marcel from Germany. He sold them to me because he upgraded his own printers uh, to a better model. Uh, these are both uh, starter models. Uh, there's the Ender... 3 I believe it is and the uh, any cubic uh, you, you uh, even if you don't know anything about 3d printers only only a little bit uh, such as me then you have seen these names pop up at some point so that's what I have been doing as well I last Monday I got them on Monday last Monday afternoon I put them together I, I had already cleared a working space on my desk for them and now tomorrow I'm going to try to see if I can get them to work, if I can calibrate them, if I can uh, uh, s start to do some printing, some, some preliminary prints. And I've also got some ideas about what I want to do for my Warhammer projects with them. So back to the phone call with my daughter. She said that a parcel had arrived, so I thought that's something to do with the 3D printer because I had ordered some uh, isopropyl alcohol that you need for cleaning and then my wife said no it was something that was delivered in the uh, mailbox so then I thought well maybe I should have to revise my topic for this episode again because I do have a couple of books in the mail uh, these are the first edition Warhammer rule books and when I have them, I plan to read them and then to slowly start up on that project that I had uh, put forward a little while ago about going chronologically through all the editions of Warhammer Fantasy and the supplements and everything uh, just to see what was released when and, and which articles and where you can find it. So I am 
both looking forward to it and dreading it a little bit because it's going to be a massive project. And I know myself, I get really enthusiastic and start stuff uh, enthusiastically. But then finishing stuff is something that's uh, an entire different story, which is why I have so many half-painted projects. Um, yeah, so uh, finishing it is going to be a challenge and I'm going to need your help with that, definitely. So... What I am not going to do today is start with the first edition of Warhammer because I haven't gotten the books yet. But I am going to take a look at two of the largest, biggest, hugest units you can get for the Dogs of War army in 5th edition and in 6th edition. Because those were the only editions where you had a Dogs of War army. And we are going to start with the Giants of Albion. The Giants of Albion in 5th edition are not in the Dogs of War army book. If you want their rules, I would have to direct you to uh, UK White Dwarf 233. There is a little introduction to them on page 2. You see one of the giants there, Bolox, he is the one that's holding his arms above his head with this uh, uh, Ogham stone or, or, or men here or whatever you would call it, one of those standing stones carved with uh, Celtic symbols above his head ready to throw it. And that's also where the intro, uh, if you remember way back uh, at the start of this episode, I read it out, they're big, they're scary and well, have we mentioned that they are big? So, uh, let me read out this little blurb here. The latest in White Dwarf's series of regiments of renown is the Giants of Albion. Led by Hengus the Druid, they take employment as mercenaries whenever it is offered, in the hope that it will lead them back home to the misty shores of Albion. And there are plenty of offers, because facing two giants is a terrifying prospect for an for an enemy now let's go to the article itself it's on page 10 of this white dwarf this particular white dwarf 233 the article starts with a little introduction about dogs of war showing the cover of the army book what they are the regiments of renown what they are ready for hire uh, they list which units appeared in the other white dwarfs before this one um, you've got uh, lumping troops fighting corks in white dwarf 230 a gazak khan a mercenary general you see hobgoblin on wolf and ogla khan's wolf boys both in 231 and teach you which is gold one raiders on in white dwarf 232 so then you get in this issue the Giants of Albion with Hengus the Druid. And at the bottom of the page you see a picture of the two giants flanking the Druid. And then uh, is there's the uh, generic mercenary general on his horse. And I think that's the Alcatani Fellowship. Uh, one of those pikemen units standing there next to them uh, forming a battle line. And then we get a picture of the uh, giants themselves, some close-up of uh, the way that they are painted. 
and then we get into the stories and the lore uh, of the giants themselves. Now, what I'm going to do is I am not going to read out the entire backstory. I had planned to do that, but instead I will read them out and record them for a Patreon episode because I'm running a little bit long and I want to uh, finish up before I have to go to bed. So, um, uh, well, well, maybe a little bit of context here. It's, uh, it's uh, 9 o'clock in the evening for me at the moment. Uh, I got up this morning at uh, 4.30 to go to work. I usually go to work early to beat traffic. And that also allows me to get home early. Then uh, I was home for a couple of hours, did some things non-stop. Then my wife had to go to work. And then I had to uh, entertain the kids and uh, feed them, put them to bed. And after that, it was sort of straight onto the podcast. So yeah, I've been going for a while here. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go over the rules for the Giants of Albion and for Sarnil the Dragon Lord. And then in the uh, Patreon episode, we are going to focus a little bit about the fluff. So if you're interested in that, I can highly recommend joining our Patreon. Our Patreon is non-tiered, which means that you can join for as little as one euro or dollar or pound or whatever the equivalent in your local currency is. And I, uh, on, on, on our Patreon is uh, where we put some uh, bonus content, some extra episodes, and your support helps us to uh, pay for hosting for the podcast and uh, also to, to uh, at one point, hopefully upgrade our equipment and stuff like that and get a little bit more professional. So if you like the podcast, if you want to support the course, then... Uh, yeah, join for as little or as much money as you like. And on a semi-regular basis, we will put out some bonus content. So, skipping the lore for the Giants of Albion, we get to the regiment. The captain is Hangus the Druid. The motto is, we've got the Bullocks to beat anybody. And Bullocks is spelled here in the name of the giant, B-O-L-O-G-S. Uh, but of course there is a very nice pun there that is very fitting with this era of Warhammer. The battle cry, all of the regiments of Renown in 5th edition have a battle cry, and the battle cry is simply Bollocks. Uh, Bollocks is the only word that Bollocks the Giant can say. Appearance. The Giants of Albion are many and varied. Most have only one eye in the middle of their foreheads, and some even have two heads. What little clothing they have is made of the hides of huge beasts such as mammoths, saber-toothed tigers, elks and cave bears. They were necklaces made from the tusks of mammoths and wild boars. I love this because even though this is a regiment of renown and they, they look the way they do and they are named the way they do, this gives you a lot of opportunities for your own conversions and just say, yeah, I've got a giant of Albion here or I've got a regular giant and he counts as a giant of Albion. For hire, any Warhammer army can hire Hangus and the Giants of Albion. Points, Bolocks, Kextor and, uh, sorry, Hangus, Kextor and Bolocks are a total of 495 points, Kextor being the other giant. 
The profiles. Hengus the Druid has web, uh, movement 4, web skill 3, ballistic skill 3, strength 3, toughness 4, 1 wound, initiative 4, 1 attack, and a leadership of 7. Both of the giants have a movement of 6, web skill, ballistic skill of 3, strength of 7, toughness 6, 6 wounds, 3 attacks, uh, so it's uh, 3 initiative, uh, attack S for special, and leadership. Six. This is exactly the same profile as a regular giant has in the 5th edition battle book. Weapons and armor. Both giants are armed with gigantic stone battle axes. Hengus is armed with a hand weapon. Armor save none, but Hengus has a 4 plus special save. Special rules. Kextor and Bolox are giants subject to the special rules for giants in the Warhammer battle book. Hengus the Druid is a level 1 wizard and uses battle magic. So what does this mean? In 5th edition you had several specialized decks but there was also one generic deck called battle magic. It has some spells like uh, fireball and, and uh, net and most of them were uh, rather underwhelming. Um, you would, if you had any chance, rather go for a, uh, a lore but yeah, the, the the human armies used these uh, battle magic decks. Um, in 4th edition you had different colleges that would return in 6th edition and stay around for 7th and 8th edition as well. But in 5th edition you had this weird place where you had a generic battle magic deck. The special rules for giants, I'm going over them real quick. The giants cause fear. Uh, they have a large limb so they can move over obstacles like walls and hedges without penalty. They have to test to see if they fall over. And when they fall over, you have to place the uh, fallen giant template anywhere uh, determined by the scatter die. The falling giant template in this edition is a uh, sitting or lying giant with his legs spread apart. So it's a, a rather weird template. In 6th edition, it was also a rather weird and irregular template, but that got a little bit more condensed. Um, then, uh, the attacks a giant have is... Uh, uh, they do not attack in the same way as other creatures. They have a choice of different attack modes. Uh, if you are familiar with giants in any edition, these attacks are all more or less the same. So I'm not going over them. Uh, the second episode, I believe, of the Wargames Orchard, which was uh, way before my time, discusses giants. So look at that one, listen to that one, I should say, if you want to know more about these giants. This is the way giants function in 5th edition, and Bodox and Gagstor are no different. Moving on to the Ogham staff. Hengus has an Ogham Staff, which is a special kind of magic item made by the Druids of Albion. Not only do the Ogham marks on the staff endow the bear with the power over giants to make them serve him, but they also protect the owner from harm. To represent this, Hengus has a special save of 4 plus against wounds caused in any way whatsoever. And a special save is what in later editions you would call a ward save. Independent models, Hengus, Kextor and Bollocks are individual models and can move independently. 
though they may not join regiments. The enemy is awarded 2 victory points for each giant slain and 1 victory point for killing Hangus. As long as the giants are within 6 inches of Hangus, they may use his leadership and are immune to panic tests. Getting 2 giants for uh, plus a wizard as a unit for 475 points, 495 points is in smaller games an all eggs in one basket kind of thing. Um, the giants with toughness 6 and 6 wounds are strong enough that they can take care for themselves. Uh, Hengus got that 4 plus special save. He's also not going anywhere, but then again, there's a 50% chance that you fail it. So you might want to hold him back a little bit, uh, screen him with the giants. Then again, if you do that, you can also not use his magic, st uh, his, his magic spells. Yeah, what can we say about this unit? I have never used them in in the game. I do have the models. Um, I'm really happy with them. I, I have to. I still have to paint them up. I I should say I'm really happy that I have them, because uh, nowadays they go for a lot of money, and then usually they are incomplete as well. I think that this is a, a very good deal for a Dogs of War army, or for any other army for that matter, because not all armies in Fifth Edition had access to giants. So let's go to the 6th edition iteration of these bad boys. The Giants of Albion in 6th edition, uh, they don't have the fluff with them, at least not in the uh, Chronicles 2004 or the Chronicles 2002, which are the two books I checked for them. I'm not sure, they, they should probably have appeared in some White Dwarf, but since they are in the Chronicles books, I didn't bother to look that up. Uh, the Giants of Albion are for hire. Hengus the Druid and the Giants of Albion can be hired in Dogs of War armies and they count as two rare units. No other Warhammer army can hire them, sorry. Points. Hengus, Kestor and Bolox cost a total of 450 points, so they've gone down by 45 points and we will see why when we discuss their stat lines. Hengus's stat line has... Uh, Changed a little bit. He's now movement 4, web skill 3, blister skill 3, strength 3. They're still the same. His toughness has dropped from 4 to 3. But instead he has gained 1 wound. He's now at 2 wounds. Initiative 3, 1 attack and leadership 7. I believe those are still the same. Bodox and Kajstor have the profile of a regular giant. At least what it was in 6th edition. Which means a movement 6, web skill, blister skill 3. Strength 6, Toughness 5, 5 Wounds, Initiative 3, uh, Special Attacks and Leadership 6. So their Strength, Toughness and Wounds have dropped by 1 point. Unit Size, huge. Yeah, okay, we can see that. Equipment, both Giants and Hangus are armed with hand weapons. Uh, magic, Hangus is a level 1 wizard and uses the Law of Beasts. Now, what I said about the battle magic, there are the rules for the college magic spells are in the back of the 5th edition uh, booklet. If you have the 4th edition cards, I believe they are more or less the same. I didn't check them all, but uh, I think that these are just ported over from 4th edition. If you wanted to, you could use college magic in 5th edition. 
And if you are going to play by those rules, by those house rules, and you are going to use College Magic for Hangus, I suggest that you lose, use Law of the Beast, as that's what he was intended to use in 6th edition. Special rules. The Ogham Staff. Hangus has an Ogham Staff, which is a special kind of magic item. That's just the same as what it was. Uh, as long as the giants are within 6 inches of Hangus, they may use his leadership value. And in addition, Hangus has a 4 plus ward save, so that leadership bubble is now uh, included in the special rules for the Ogham Staff. They have the rule in the independent models, which means that they are individual models, they move independently, though they may not join regiments. And the enemies awarded victory points for each kill. Hangus is worth 100 points and each giant is worth 175 points. If you are an Ox and Goblins player like me, then you have learned by heart that in 6th edition, at least when you were, if you were an Ox and Goblins player in 6th edition, you've learned by heart that a giant costs 205 points. So these are 30 points cheaper. And there's a reason for that. Uh, it's not in the profile, it's in their special rules. Giants of Albion. Kestor and Bolox are large targets and cause terror. Note that although named Kestor and Bolox do not count as being characters, giants treat obstacles like open ground but are prone to falling. Roll a d6 if they cross an obstacle or lose a round of combat. If you roll a 1, the giant has fallen and can squash those underneath. Use the scatter dice to see which direction they fall in and use the model itself as a template. Now I'm not sure you'd want to do that with metal models. Uh, use them as a template. If you drop them, then the unit of elf spearmen that you have been squashing will really be squashed. But yeah, that, uh, uh, that gives you a very large template because these are... Are long models that are stretched out, especially uh, Bollocks with his hands above his head. Uh, that's going to cover a lot of, mo of models. Uh, those underneath take a single strength 5 hit, which causes d3 wounds. Uh, giants may not attack and are hit automatically in hand to hand combat whilst on the ground, and they are automatically killed if they break from combat while on the ground. It takes a giant one turn to stand up, and giants also fall over when they die. In close combat you must roll a dice each round to determine what the giant will do that turn. And then we get a division against large targets and against smaller targets, but this division is... It excludes some options and there are some dice rolls here that you uh, get with the regular 6th edition giant, which is also, I believe, in one of these chronicles uh, as a Dogs of War unit, you can hire a giant but then you get the full profile with the full rules for that one. So Castor and Bollocks attacks are simplified. Against large targets, they roll a uh, one to on a roll of a one to three, they will yell and ball, which means that the giant does not attack, but the enemy side automatically loses the fight by two. And on a roll of four to six, they will add butt, which causes d6 strength five hits randomized like missile fire for rhythm monsters. Against smaller opponents, the giant will yell and ball on a 1 to 2. On a roll 3 to 4, they will jump up and down, which causes 2d6 strength 6 hits on the unit as missile fire. But first, they have to test if they will fall over. And on a roll of a 5 to 6, they will swing with club, which causes d6 strength 6 hits randomized as missile fire. There's no uh, pick up and uh, put in your trousers or in your bag or throw into a unit in this one. Um, 
there is no thumpet club which also causes uh, hits but then the club can embed itself in the ground so yeah that's uh, a little bit downplayed here and i think the biggest thing that hurts is the drop of those stat lines yeah we, i know we, we get it across the board in sixth edition but still coming from fifth uh, a toughness six giant with six wounds is a lot better than a toughness five giant with five wounds now let's move on to the other big thing that we can hire as a unit which is Asanil the Dragon Lord. Asanil is a high elf dragon prince on a dragon and he can be hired by uh, several different armies. Let's see here I closed the book so now I have to get the page back. Uh, here we are, Asano the Dragon Lord. He's also uh, starts with a story. All of these 5th edition Dogs of War characters, or, or units, I should say, start with a story. Asano and Death Fang. Can you guess which one is which? Captain Asano the Dragon Lord. Motto Victory is a foregone conclusion. Yeah, there's definitely nothing high elfy about that. Battle cry Vanil Vanil is the battle cry of the Caledorians, calling for vengeance and a death. Appearance Attired in all, all the splendor of the Dragon Princes of Old, Asanil and his dragon are a truly magnificent sight on the battlefield. Glittering Ithilma armor and shining gems combined with the sheer presence of the great dragon Deathfang are unforgettable if you survive to tell the tale. For hire, Asano the Dragon Lord despises mere money and unfortunate affliction for uh, an unfortunate affliction for a mercenary, and he reserves his services for the following armies only: High Elves, Wood Elves, Dwarfs when he's feeling generous, Bretonians, the Empire, Lizardmen, and naturally the Dogs of War. Points, Sarnel and his mighty dragon Deathfang cost a total of 750 points. That's a lot of points to sink into a single unit, um, but we will see why that is. The profile, Sarnel has a movement of 5, web skill 6, ballistic skill 6, strength 4, toughness 4, 2 wounds, initiative 8, 3 attacks and a leadership of 9. I haven't checked it, but this is more or less on par, I believe, with a regular elven hero. Deathfang the Dragon has a strength of 6, weapon skill 7, blizzard skill naturally of 0, uh, strength and toughness of 7, weapon, uh, wounds 8, initiative 5, 8 attacks and a leadership of 8. This is the profile of a great dragon. In 5th edition you had three types of dragon which are dragon, great dragon and emperor dragon. And the uh, the difference between them is that going up in the um, in the ranking you get for each level one extra point of weapon skill, strength, toughness, wound, initiative and attacks. Oh and leadership as well. So only movement uh, and, and ballistic skill stay the same. Movement at 6, ballistic skill at 0. So yeah, this is uh, something that you can definitely make some use of. A toughness 7, 8 wounds dragon. He's not really going anywhere. 
The Elf on Top is a different story altogether. Weapons and Armor Asanil wears heavy Ithilma armor and carries his shield. He's armed with a sword and a lance and he rides Deathfang the Great Green Dragon. That means he's got a save of a 4 plus for heavy armor and shield. And Ithilma armor I believe says that it does not give you a movement penalty. Now I do not know for certain that you get a movement penalty on a flying monster for having heavy armor and shield. But you do if you are on a regular horse. And magic items he's only got one which is the amulet of Dragonheart. It's an enchanted item it's worth 45 points which is included in the 750 points that you pay for him. Uh, the amulet was one of the potent artifacts made by Kalador the Dragon Tamer for the Elven Dragon Princess. It is said that the gleaming gem hanging around Asano's neck is a stone found at the heart of a mountain, blessed by Kalador the Dragon Tamer himself. So if you replace elves with dwarves here and you have a stone and a mountain and a dragon, that immediately casts my mind back to uh, the hobbits, the Arkenstone, uh, Smaug, the dragon. There might have been something here. Uh, we know Games Workshop borrowed a lot of things. Uh, there might be a, a slight, uh, very, very small wink here. It's, it's not... Uh, yeah, how am I going to say this? It's, it's not so obvious that you can say there's a definite connection. Um, but there's also those three specific elements there that make me think that this is not a coincidence. So what does this uh, shiny Arkenstone gem do? The dazzling light of the Amulet of Dragonheart makes the shape of Asano and his dragon appear blurry and disorientated, as if glanced through a haze. Such is the power of this sorcery that anyone fighting against Asano will have his weapon skill reduced to 1. This lasts as long as the models are in base contact with Asanil. Now, lovely, lovely 5th edition is always a little bit ambiguous with these things. It says that anyone fighting against Asarnil will have a weapon skill of 1. Does that mean that if you fight against the dragon, you fight at your normal weapon skill and you just have to worry about the dragon's weapon skill 7? Which usually means you're rolling 5s or 6s anyway. Uh, you would definitely roll 5 or 6s if you are fighting with web skill 1. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how to do this. Uh, it, it does say it lasts as long as the models are in base contact with the Sarnil. Uh, the base, of course, being the base that the dragon stands on, which in 4th edition, 5th uh, edition, edition, I believe was a 40mm base. So... Uh, I looked at, at the FAQ, uh, there's nothing definite there, there is a 5th edition FAQ, but I could not find anything when I uh, googled the search for the name Asarnil, so um, in my vocabulary apparently searching on a webpage has, has turned into googling. So um let's see here we have some special rules for this unit because it is a unit it is a hero on a dragon but it counts as a unit and the special rules are as follows dragon dead fang the great worm is a great green dragon and as all the special rules apply uh, all the special rules apply see the warhammer battle book for details Let's do that. Let's take a look at the Warhammer Battlebook, which I have in front of me here. 
Dragons are have the following special rules. They have the rules fly, which means that they can fly, which in 5th edition is 24 inches. They have scaly skin, and scaly skin gives them a 4 plus armor save, which is unmodifiable. So no matter which strength the attacker has, they will always get a 4 plus save. Dragons are usually frightening monsters that cause terror. And they have a breath weapon. Uh, the breath weapon is uh, the teardrop shaped template and any model uh, under the template is hit on a score of four or more. So templates in this edition, uh, the teardrop shaped template was rather large, it's a lot longer than it was in uh, 6th edition and later, but anything under the template, completely under the template is hit on a four plus. Anything partially under the template is usually not hit at all. So template weapons are not as effective as they will be in later editions. Now depending on the type of dragon, uh, you get different breath weapons. And since Asano's riding a green dragon, let's take a look at what green dragon breath weapons do. Green dragons belch corrosive green fumes. These acrid clouds dissolve skin and irritate eyes. Any model hit suffers a strength 4 hit with no saving throw for armor. In addition, a unit attacked by corrosive fumes may be forced to give ground before the choking cloud. The unit takes a leadership test in the same way as for fear or other psychology tests. Now that is not something to sneeze at. Well, the dragon might sneeze a cloud of uh, nauseous fume. Which um, can it can melt the skin of your bones, but it can also be really irritating to your eyes, which of course is a lot worse, I guess. Uh, so yeah, a strength single strength for hit, no armor saving throws allowed. That will take out some models, and even if it doesn't, you still get that leadership test. Um, that might cause the unit to flee. I, sh I I have this model. I should paint him up at some point. I also have the. Uh, 4th edition, 5th edition forest dragon, 4th edition it is, um, the wood elf forest dragon, which is also going to be a green dragon of course. Uh, you also have uh, blue dragons, black dragons, red dragons and white dragons. So I need to see how many dragon models I have left because I do want one of each at some point. Um, yeah, black dragon I should have with the high elves, I have uh, Rakar the dragon lord. I already have a blue dragon because the... Oh, what's he called again? Uh, Imric. Prince Imric, the high elf Prince Imric, is uh, riding a dragon that I painted up blue. So that means I just need to find two more dragons in my collection that I can paint either white or red, or white and or red. I know I have a spare one that I was trying to... Uh, I'm going to use for Karl Franz to have a uh, mounted Karl Franz on an emperor dragon. That one is going to be a bit whitish, um, and well, I know I have Egrim von Horstman. He's going on a Chaos Dragon, but I believe that one has four, uh, two heads, so that's not quite the same. I might have to see if I can score another Dragon model somewhere. Maybe I just uh, print one out because I can do that now. Haha! <laughs> I I belong to the 3D printing crowd, so. Asana the Dragon Lord, he has these rules. Uh, we're not done yet because since he is a high elf, 
he also follows the rules for high elf dragon princes, uh, at least the high elf riding dragons. And uh, fortunately, this book does not say go buy the high elf book and then you will find the rules, but it says we are reprinting these rules here below for your convenience. These rules are as follows. Dragon Tamer. The Elves of Kalador have a natural empathy for dragonkind that is recognized by all dragons of any type, evil aligned dragons, chaos dragons, etc. If a high elf character riding a dragon is fighting in hand-to-hand -hand combat against another dragon, then the enemy dragon must take and pass a leadership test before it attacks. The test is taken in the same way as any other leadership-based test, etc. It uses the dragon's leadership characteristic if unridden, the rider's leadership if ridden, or the general's leadership if he is within 12 inches. This test is only taken once at the start of combat, and the enemy dragon will either fight for the duration of the combat or refuse to fight for the entire combat. If the dragon refuses to fight, it will not strike blows or use its breath at all. However, a dragon will only refuse to fight so long as it is not attacked itself. Should the dragon be attacked, it will always fight back. This is a really cool rule that makes any high elf on a dragon a a, a dragon hunter, a monster, uh, um, well, a, a character on dragon hunter, I should say, because you can just throw all of those uh, uh, what what was it, eight attacks, uh, so seven, eight, or nine attacks depending on your level of dragon. Um, you can throw all of those attacks at the rider, and you can also throw the attacks of the your own dragon rider at the rider. And then kill the dragon, and then they have to take a uh, bound monster test. Uh, that's also the case if uh, a Sarnel is slain, but there's a special rule, which is also for the high elves here. If a dragon's rider is slain, then you must roll on the monster reaction table in Warhammer to, determ to determine what the dragon does. And uh, when it says in Warhammer, that refers to the rulebook, 5th edition rulebook. Now rolling on this chart, add plus 1 to the die score. This means the dragon will never fly away from battle. If you roll a 6, then you may choose any result you wish from the monster reaction table. I don't have the uh, uh, Warhammer rulebook of 5th edition here with me, uh, but I know that some of the higher numbers are better. It means that the giant, uh, I believe it either stays where it is, or it gets to... Uh, uh, even gets to fight with some semblance of control. Um, so there's, there's some stuff like that there, and uh, on the one it, it will fly away, which now it won't, which is really good because you paid a lot of points for that thing, and the elf on top is rather squishy, he's only got a 4 plus armor save. Now we go to 6th edition, and as with any character or any unit, um, Asarnil the Dragonlord got a little bit of a downgrade in 6th edition. He can be hired as a rare unit in Dogs of War armies. He will take up one of your hero slots as well as a rare unit slot. Alternatively, he can be hired as a rare unit and in this case he takes up two hero slots in one of the following armies. High Elves, Wood Elves, Empire and Lizardmen. So Asano's generosity has declined a little bit over the editions because he can now no longer hire his services to dwarves. The points got a big downgrade. Sarnel and his mighty dragon Deathfang cost a total of 460 points. That's a drop of almost 300 points. 
where the Giants of Albion had a unit size of huge, the unit size of a Sarnal is a massive. Usually this is of course a number. Uh, for example, if you look at Tichuichi Raiders, it says unit size 6 to 20. Now we will see why it's got this big drop in points. Asanil has movement 5, weapon skill 7, ballistic skill 4, strength 4, that's still the same. Toughness 3, that's something that all elves got in 6th edition, that toughness dropped. He's still got 2 wounds, initiative 7, 4 attacks and a leadership of 9. That Fang is now a regular dragon, which is basically 6's across the board. Movement, weapon skill 6, ballistic skill 0, strength, toughness 6, 6 wounds. Initiative 3, 5 attacks, and a leadership of 8. So the stats got a massive downgrade. And uh, yeah, losing 2 wounds, losing, uh, what was it, 1 point of toughness or 2 points of toughness. Uh, that's something that will make this unit a little bit more squishy than it was in the previous edition. Um... Oh, by the way, Asano has uh, lost a point of initiative, but he has gained an attack uh, on his profile between editions. And, uh, yeah, um, looking at the dragon, he lost one point of weapon skill, strength, and toughness. Two wounds, he lost two points of initiative. He lost three attacks, and fortunately his leadership stayed exactly the same, which is eight. Asanil still has a hand weapon, lance, heavy armor and shield, and he still rides Deathfang the dragon. Special rules, Deathfang, Asanil's loyal dragon is a large target, can fly, causes terror and has a strengthful breath weapon. Note that Deathfang does not count as a character. I'm not quite sure what they mean by this because, to my knowledge, Dragons don't count as characters in 6th edition. I might be missing something, but I look at the High Elf book and it doesn't say anywhere that dragons count as a character. Uh, this might have meant to say that Sarnel does not count as a character, but yeah. Um, I, I, I'm not exactly sure how to interpret this. So maybe if someone knows, someone is more knowledgeable about dragons in 6th edition. Uh, back in the day, I rarely played either against or with dragons, never with dragons, and, and only a few times against dragons, so I have no idea how this would function if dragons are characters in 6th edition. Uh, special rules. Uh, in addition, if rolling on the monster reaction chart for that fang, you add plus 1 to the dice score. If you roll a 6, you may choose any result you wish. That one has ported over from 5th edition. Asano still has the Arkenstone um, the, uh, the Amulet of Dragonheart is called an enchanted item. And the Dazzling Green, sorry, the Dazzling Light of the Amulet uh, makes the shape of a sun and his dragon appear blurry and vague as if glanced through a haze. So, what do you think this does? Weapon skill 1? Uh, no, not really. All missile attacks against the Sarnal and his dragon suffer a minus one to hit penalty. Yeah, that's a little bit underwhelming because um, he, the dragon is a large target. So you already get plus one to hit. So, so this is just cancelling out that the dragon is a large target for shooting. Um, 
Asanil only has his heavy armor. He's only got two wounds, so there's a real chance that if you shoot at him with a lot of attacks, uh, then uh, you you hit Asanil on a five or a six. He's got toughness three, so even with regular bows, that's a four plus. And then uh, two wounds that each got a fifty uh, percent chance of saving. So that would mean just just moth hammering this out. Uh, that will mean uh, two wounds times two for the armor save is uh, f uh, four shots and times two for the toughness is eight shots and then times three because there's a one in three chance uh, you would hit the elf is a uh, what was that uh, 24 shots so so a, a fairly decent unit of archers that hits that all hit uh, they should all hit in in um, in this example. So uh, let's say you only hit 50% of the time. You need to fire 50 arrows at him, 48 arrows to kill him, statistically speaking. And in shooty armies, that's uh, that's not not undoable. So you can take out this unit just by shooting at him from a distance. There's of course that 20 inch fly, so the dragon will be on you in a couple of turns, but then you also, if you are, if he is charging a shooter unit, uh, you still get to stand and shoot at him. So yeah, I definitely get why he had that 300 point drop between editions. Right, that's going to do it for these two very large monsters. Now, before we end, there is something that I have to say about this, because these are both unit entries. That means that even though Hengus and Asanel are heroes, they are characters, they are still not counted as characters. Well, they are in 6th edition, because you pay for the hero, but if you take a look at the Doctor of War book in 5th edition, it says that the army composition is 35% characters and 65% is uh, regiments. Now even though Hengus is a level 1 wizard, this entire regiment counts as a regiment. So you can get a wizard without taking away the uh, from the percentage of your characters. Uh, let me check here real quick because it's yeah, it's up to 35% of characters and it's at least 65% of Regiments of Renown. This is Regiment of Renown, so you can take him. Or you can take them. So, if you wanted to be uh, that kind of player, you could say in a... Uh, let's see here real quick, because the next one we are going to discuss, after we discuss the 6th edition rules, is Asano the Dragonlord. Uh, Asano costs 750 points and Asano has the same kind of deal going on. He's a hero on a dragon except that he is a regiment, he's not a character. So uh, if you want to, to be that kind of player you could say uh, do a game of... Oh, I have to calculate this real quick. So Asarnil, the Dragonlord, and the Giants of Albion combined costs 1245 points. 
that means that you could have a fifteen hundred points game with just these models and a mercenary general because you do have to have at least one mercenary general to lead your army uh, he has 121 points he can have some magic items but yeah if you wanted to be that guy you can go up to 1900 point games with just characters and these two units uh, there's not really an elegant way to get them up to 2000 points without adding another unit um that will take you a lot of a lot over 2000 points but then again you can reduce the number of characters or the points cost on characters should you want to do that <laughs> now i'm not saying this is a good idea and i'm not endorsing this i'm not going to be uh, telling you that you should play like this because i'm not sure you will make many friends uh, then again if you want to do this it is an, an, an all eggs in one basket kind of thing uh, and these characters can um, definitely get killed. Uh, not easy, but it can be done, especially with uh, things like combat results and stuff like that, uh, where you win combat and um, they got a low leadership and then they flee. So, yeah, I don't think I'd recommend it, but it might be fun to, to do that at some point, a game like that where you have... Uh, a mercenary general, a dragon, and two giants uh, that come with their own level 1 wizard bodyguard. Alright, enough of these shenanigans. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm going to sign off for now. I'm not going to record these stories tonight. I will do that tomorrow. I've got a day off tomorrow. But I did want to also spend tomorrow uh, calibrating my printers. And uh, yeah, I still wanted to get this, this podcast out because of the Old World article news. So um, yeah, one more thing I have to say before I leave you is that I do apologize if my voice sounds a bit raspy at times or if I had to uh, stop the recording in between. Uh, my health has really taken a hit these last weeks i believe it's still a lingering effect of long covid it might also be because i uh, don't take well enough care of myself I, uh, I, uh, I get up early but i usually also fall asleep late so i don't get full night's rests all of the time it also depends on the kids what they do well if you have kids you know how that is so yeah, um, in these past few weeks I've had some health issues and I thought I had left most of it behind me and then a few nights ago I, I felt this uh, itch in my throat and uh, I started coughing and that has only increased and gotten worse. So I'm, I'm sucking on these throat candy pastille things. I don't know what you call them in English but... Uh, they should help, but I, I don't notice much effects from them. Um, yeah, so uh, if that in impacted the quality of the podcast of the recording in any way, I do apologize for that. I hope you have still enjoyed it uh, despite these things. If you have ever used uh, in 5th edition or 6th edition either of these units... Uh, please get in touch, let me know how they play, what your experiences were. 
Uh, you can do that in many different ways. You can uh, reach us uh, via Instagram, although I would not recommend that because that is not a channel that I I look on too often, uh, especially now that I've gotten a ban. It doesn't affect the Wargames Orchard account, but uh, yeah, it, it does not help me get motivated to do a lot of it Instagram at the moment. Uh, a much better way would be to reach out on Facebook, on the Warhammer Orchard Facebook group, or just to uh, send me a direct message. You will find me as, as one of the admins in that Facebook group. You will also find me hanging around on a lot of other Warhammer Facebook groups, uh, and also on the Crown of Command Discord, where we've also got an, our own Wargames Orchard channel where every new episode is uploaded automatically. Uh, and we also get some, some nice feedback from time to time on that channel there. So if you're interested in these things, please uh, come check it out. Come uh, follow us, come visit us. And I will hopefully uh, catch you tomorrow on our Patreon. And if not, then I will see you next week time uh, which hopefully is next week we we are trying to be on a weekly schedule but that's uh, yeah Nathan is very busy and I'm also both busy and ill sometimes so I can't guarantee a weekly schedule at this moment we are trying to do our best to do that so let's be optimistic here and just say see you next week thanks for listening you can connect with us on Instagram or email us at wargamesorchard at gmail.com. And don't forget to join us on Facebook at The Warhammer Orchard. Know ye now, the time of mortals has come to an end.